0: brought back the 90s video game theme for this series, so hopefully uh, that doesn't bother you. We'll give you a little flashback. Could we just sing that last song, like, at the end again? Is that cool? Because, like, we could literally, like, the wall was shaking, people were singing so loud. So if you guys need to do something, to plan on that, go for it. Uh, my name is Aaron. If you're new here, I'm the teaching pastor at Living Hope. I want to say thank you, first off, for those of you that prayed for the men in our church uh, that were down in Cincinnati the last two days an incredible time. Um, I learned something though pretty significant in the midst of other things that we're never going to get Living Hope bumper stickers because um, we took the guys go-karting and it was a sanctifying process because of the way some of the men in this church drive go-karts. I will never allow you to have a bumper sticker on your car. Um, <laughs> gracious, that's the truth. But uh, so, so thank you for that and then for last week for giving me the privilege of being able to be in Arkansas and to teach. I taught at a youth retreat uh, for a youth group and we saw I believe it was five to six students. I haven't got the final number. Give their lives to Jesus at that retreat, which is just wonderful. That's why we do what we do. Um, was able to share on Sunday morning, Indian Springs Baptist Church, just outside of Little Rock, Arkansas, share the story of what God has done here and encourage people to get involved and take risks for the mission of God. And uh, it was weird. I don't know if this is a Southern thing, but after the second service, after my message, some of the senior adults in the church came up to me and they would stick out their hand to shake my hand and just to encourage me, hey, pastor, this is such a good message, appreciate you coming. And when they would shake my hand, there would be a $20 bill in it. And the first time it happened, I'm like, I don't know what I'm supposed to do. And the old lady just looked at me and nodded. And I'm like, I guess that means I take it. <laughs> Five minutes later, I had $180 in my pocket from all of the senior adults in that church. So that was uh, interesting, but uh, paid, for, paid for dinner and dinner a couple more times over. Super cool. Um, But the last thing I want to share with you, and we're going to get in Romans here in just a moment. Um, So we we always have these little phrases we use at Living Hope. Uh, One of them for years has been that we're living in the middle of a miracle, Ephesians 3.20, which is still true here. But another one more recently that we've been saying a lot of is that uh, Jesus is doing a lot with a dot. That although we're a small dot on the map of a church or on the map, Jesus is choosing to do a lot with our church. And so you probably saw in our hallway here, Tori made us this little sign that has that phrase, Jesus can do a lot with a dot, as just a little decor piece. Well, today, um, another lady in our church, Amber, has started making these little shirts that say, Jesus can do a lot with a dot. And so if you want one of those signs, or if you want one of these shirts, uh, be sure to let me know, and I'll take down your information, pass it along to those ladies, and they would love to get you one of these uh, custom-made shirts, and I, I just think this is super cool. I'm going to wear this out and wear this to the gym, and shirts like this always invoke conversation with people. Uh, I do it at the gym all the time. You wear this shirt, and you just kind of like walk around <laughs> kind of like a rooster strutting his stuff, and uh, people ask you questions, and so I encourage you, uh, if you're interested in that, to let me know. Well, if you have a copy of the Scriptures, if you'll open up to Romans chapter one, we're starting a journey today through the book of Romans. And uh, appreciate John Drown preaching last week, first sermon. Um, y'all, we're we're really blessed with the men that God is raising up in our church to be Bible teachers, and I'm so encouraged. That's one of my passions is raising up the next generation of preachers and uh, super encouraged got to go back I listened to part of it when I was in, Ar- in Arkansas but I was too nervous so I would tune in for like 30 seconds and then turn it off because if he messed up I was, I was like there's nothing I can do from Arkansas it's Joe's problem uh, but got to go back and listen and he just he crushed it and I'm so thankful Seth a couple of weeks ago absolutely crushed it and uh, so God's been super kind in that area well stand with me in honor of reading God's word Romans chapter 1 we're going to read the first six verses and God's word says this through Paul He says, Paul, a servant of Christ Jesus, called as an apostle and set apart for the gospel of God, which he promised beforehand through his prophets in the Holy Scriptures, concerning his son Jesus Christ our Lord, who is a descendant of David according to the flesh, and was appointed to be the powerful Son of God according to the Spirit of holiness by the resurrection of the dead. Through him we have received grace and apostleship to bring about the obedience of faith for the sake of his name among all Gentiles, including you who are also called by Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word. And God, I pray these next few moments as we walk through these verses together. God, would you teach us and mold us. God, shape us into the the image of Jesus. Lord, give us ears to hear from you this morning. God, receptive hearts, not just to hear, but Lord, to receive your word and hands and feet to live out the truths that we encounter in the scriptures today. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. You guys can be seated. You've probably heard this name before, Charles Spurgeon, a preacher in the late 1800s, but he has many quotes that have kind of made their way through church history, but one of the most famous and one of my most favorite quotes from Charles Spurgeon was this. He said, "'Read many good books, but live in the Bible.'" Say that again read many good books, but live in the Bible. And today, as we begin this journey through the book of Romans, we're starting this today. Romans is a pretty significant book in the scriptures and throughout church history. Romans is made up of 16 books in this, 16 chapters, 433 verses, 9,422 words. It's one of the largest books that we have in the New Testament. And as I begin to kind of map out this journey of Romans that we're going to take in the coming months, I I believe, it's going to scare you a little bit, that it's probably going to take us about two and a half to three years to get through the book of Romans if we walk through it verse by verse. That freaks you out and you need to find a new church. That's okay. But I'm just kidding. As a church, we're going to be in Romans for a while. We're going to live in the scriptures together these next couple of years, but specifically in the book of Romans. Why, why this book? There's several reasons, and so I'm gonna ask for a little grace this morning. We're, we're gonna get to our passage here in a minute, but I wanna lay some foundation as to why we decided on the book of Romans. We, we planned these series out several months in advance, and I can remember, I think it was summer last year, as we knew that Galatians was gonna come to an end in 2021, and Pastor Joe and I were praying and talking, and he kept telling me, like, dude, we gotta do Romans, like we have to do Romans. And I wasn't convinced at that point, But as we were praying and talking, just, I know we're supposed to be in Romans these next couple of years, and it's going to make sense why here in a moment. But let me give you a few reasons why Romans is so important to us. First off, if you're a note taker, write this stuff down. Romans, I believe, gives one of the most extensive, in-depth explanations of the gospel of any New Testament book that we have. You see in the first 11 chapters of the 16 chapters in the book of Romans that Paul spends these 11 chapters giving us an exhaustive explanation of what the gospel is. But then he doesn't just leave us there. Paul gives this exhaustive explanation in the first 11 chapters, and then in chapter 11, he makes a transition, or chapter 12, excuse me. He transitions, and now he gives this practical application of the gospel. You see, over these next two and a half years, I believe with all of my heart that as a church, we're going to understand the gospel better than probably any of us have in our entire Christian walk. Here's what I love about the the book of Romans as well. There's times where we're going to read Romans, and it's so simple. Like Romans chapter 10, if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord, believe in your heart that God raised Him from the dead, you will be saved. Paul makes it simple you got to confess Jesus, agree with God who Jesus is, believe in Him as Lord, that He died on a cross for you and that He ultimately came back three days later. You do those things, Paul says, you're saved. That's good news. But then there's times that we're going to read the book of Romans, and if you read through it, and I encourage you to do this in your quiet times, read through the book of Romans, you're going to get to chapters like Romans chapter 9. And you're going to read it, and you're going to be like, I have literally no idea what Paul is talking about. I have no clue what he means and I'm probably just never going to read the Bible again because this is the most confusing thing that I've ever read in my entire life. Sometimes Romans is incredibly confusing. It's hilarious. Joe and I were talking about it this week. Um, the Apostle Peter, if you want to turn in your Bible, it'll be on the screen, 2 Peter chapter 3. He actually wrote down, he's like, uh, Paul says a lot of really good things. But sometimes what Paul says is like super confusing. All right, check this verse out. I thought this was funny. Uh, 2 Peter 3, starting in verse 15, he said, Also, regard the patience of our Lord as salvation, Listen to this. Just as our dear brother Paul has written to you according to the wisdom given to him. So Paul wrote multiple New Testament letters. He says he speaks about these things in his letters regarding salvation and the gospel. And then look at what Peter says about Paul. There's some things that are just hard to understand in them. Uh, Let's put it in modern terms. Peter's like, Paul's confusing. And sometimes I don't even know what he's talking about. That's the book of Romans. Sometimes it's simple. Sometimes it's very complex. But what does Paul do? Exhaustive explanation of the gospel, practical explanation of the gospel. In the book of Romans, this is the second thing that I would write down. Paul references the gospel incredibly frequently. God, like three major words that Paul uses throughout this letter. He uses the word God, Christ, and faith more than any other word in the book of Romans. Just for reference sake. He uses the word God 153 times. That means one out of every 62 words that Paul wrote down in the book of Romans was the word God. I think that's pretty significant. He uses the word Christ, Jesus Christ, our Lord. He used the word Christ 65 times. That means that every chapter of the book of Romans that you read, that Paul's going to mention Christ probably at least four times. He mentions the word faith throughout this book, 16 chapters, 40 different times. Why does he do that? Because he wants the Romans to understand just as he wanted the Galatians to understand that your salvation is not by your works. It's by faith in Jesus Christ. So he references these things over and over. Why does he do that? Because the gospel is the pinnacle of the book of Romans. Second or third thing, excuse me, that I want you to write down. Romans stands tall in church history as one of the most life-changing books for many people. Let me give you a few examples of here. You ever heard of the name Augustine? This means yes, this means no. Just, I know we're tired. If you're on a retreat, yeah. Oh yeah, Augustine, I've heard of him. I've read a lot about him. Great book, great guy. He's probably be good to have coffee with, I'm sure. History says, I love this about Augustine. AD 386. It says that Augustine was in the backyard of his buddy's house. And he was weeping over his sin. It's pretty interesting to read the stories of some of these famous theologians, these famous figures in church history. But he said he was weeping over his sin. He knew that he was in rebellion against God. But Augustine said, as he wrote down this story after it happened, he said, but I didn't know what to do about it. And as he was in the backyard of his friend's house, weeping and praying, knowing that he was an enemy of God, It's said that in the distance, he heard some children that were playing. And as he heard those children playing and just a little little ways off, he heard them in this game that they were playing saying these words, take up and read, take up and read. I don't know what game they were playing, but it sounds boring to me. All right. But these kids kept saying that phrase over, take up and read, take up and read, take up and read. And as Augustine's there crying and praying, knowing that he's a rebel against God, He believed that in that moment, God was using the voices of those children to talk to him. So what did he do? He believed God was saying, you need to take up and read. And so he reached into the the little container that was next to him with the different scrolls of the scriptures. And he just so happened to pull out the scroll that had Romans chapter 13 on it. Let me read to you the verse that he read. Romans chapter 13, starting in verse 13. It said that, Augustine read these words, "Let us walk with decency," starting in verse 13 of Romans 13. "Let us walk with decency as in the daytime, not in carousing or drunkenness, not in sexual impurity or promiscuity, not in quarreling or jealousy," but verse 14 is what got him, "but put on the Lord Jesus Christ and make no plans to gratify the desires of the flesh." And Augustine writes that after reading those scriptures that he finally understood that it was Jesus was the one who took care of his rebellion against God. That he needed to put on Christ and that would be sufficient to satisfy his rebellion against God. And he became a follower of Jesus. Maybe you've heard the name Martin Luther. Probably if you're a Christian and you don't celebrate Halloween, you celebrate Reformation Day, you're so edgy. I'm just kidding, I probably shouldn't have said that. I'm so sorry. If that offended you, email me, joe at livingupcolumbus.com. I'm seriously sorry, I probably shouldn't have said that. With the Protestant Reformation, Martin Luther, we all know that name. And Martin Luther, it's interesting. Martin Luther was a crazy man, by the way. But in 1513, it said that he was lecturing on the book of Psalms. And as he's lecturing these students, Martin Luther writes, he says, Although I was lecturing the scriptures internally, I was in utter turmoil. Because I knew that I had a sin problem that what I was doing personally was doing nothing about. It's said that as he was lecturing in the Psalms, he came across this verse when he was teaching to his students, Psalm 31, verse 1, where he said, Lord, I seek refuge in you. Let me never be disgraced. And here's the part that got Martin Luther, save me by your righteousness. And as Martin Luther heard that passage and he was teaching that, he says, I became so confused. He said, how could God's righteousness save me? and not destroy me? How could God's righteousness save me and not punish me for my sin? It's said later in his studies that he came across Romans chapter 1, verse 17, where Paul wrote these words that we'll explore in just a few weeks. For in it, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith, just as it is written. Paul said the righteous will live by faith. And Martin Luther goes on to write that For days, he pondered Romans 1 verse 17 until he finally understood that it was not by his works that he would be justified before God. I hope we get that. We were in Galatians for 21 weeks. I hope we understand it's not by our works that we are justified before God. But Martin Luther said it was by God's own righteousness that he justifies me by faith. He's quoted as saying this, that the passage of Paul became the gateway to heaven for me. I love that. And it's amazing how as you read church history, how many people were impacted by Paul's writing in the book of Romans. Let me give you a couple more quotes here, and then we'll get to our passage. John Calvin, you've probably heard that name before, church theologian. He said, when anyone understands this epistle referencing Romans, he has a passage open to him to the understanding of the whole scripture. Because Paul covers law, faith, and grace all in one book, And he brings it all together, the whole counsel of God. Samuel Coleridge said, this is the most profound, and this guy was a poet and an author, the most profound work in existence. It's amazing how many people even outside of the Christian faith will comment that the book of Romans is one of the greatest literary works that has ever been written by a human being. Richard Lenski, this guy was a Lutheran theologian. It's a Baptist church. Don't freak out. We're just quoting the guy. We don't share the same theology. All right, we're We're good. Richard Lenski said that this is the most dynamic of all New Testament letters. You see, there's something unique about the book of Romans. Not only in what it says in its construction about the gospel, in its cultural relevance. We're going to see in just a few weeks what the the book of Romans talks about so much that we're dealing with in the United States right now: gender and human sexuality issues. Paul just comes right out and said, "Here's what God says." Take it or leave it. And we're going to see that in the book of Romans, the understanding that we're going to gain of the gospel. Friends, this book is going to benefit us greatly, but let's look at the messenger and the message real quick so we understand the introduction. If you're a note taker, point number one is this. First off, it's the messenger. The messenger. We see, based on the very first word of verse number one in your book, you can circle this if you'd like to, that the apostle Paul is the author of this letter. He wrote this book of the Bible, this letter to the church in Rome, while he was on his third missionary journey. He had a little bit of downtime at the church of Corinth, sometime between 53 and 58 AD. But what makes this introduction of Romans chapter 1, these first six verses, so interesting, and I don't want us to miss this, is that of all the 13 letters that the Apostle Paul wrote to different churches and different people, Romans has the longest introduction of any letter. Why is that? See, if we believe God is sovereign, if we believe that God has inspired every word of the scripture, which we do, then there has to be a reason that the apostle Paul had such a long introduction on this letter. And here's why. Here's why this is true. Because typically when Paul wrote a letter to a church or to a group of churches, he was writing to them to correct theology or to address an issue that they had. So for example, in Galatians, If you all remember in Galatians, he was writing to all of these churches that he had helped started in Galatia. They had fallen into false theology with the Judaizers. They were believing that Jesus was not enough for salvation, but it was their works that were necessary. And the first sign of that was the act of circumcision. We have to obey the Jewish law. Then we will really be saved. Paul writes a letter to him and he says, y'all are nuts. Knock it off. The Judaizers are losers. Move on. That was in the exact translation, but it was pretty close. That's typically what Paul does. Romans is different because in Romans, Paul's explaining the gospel. So we just said a minute ago, his focus is the gospel. It's not issues within these churches. It's simply the gospel. And Paul knew if you read the book of Acts, the Holy Spirit had warned Paul that there was trouble awaiting him on his future journey. So Paul never knew if he would actually get to Rome. So he writes this letter sent by Phoebe to these believers of these churches, and he says, I don't know if I will ever get the chance to come to you, but I want you to be certain and sure that you understand the gospel that I preach. So I will do everything that I can through this letter to make sure you have an extensive and exhaustive understanding of the gospel. Now notice in this first verse, Paul identifies himself in, in three ways. I want you to underline these if you have a pen. Paul starts off with his rank. This is important. Again, they've never met Paul in person before. They've heard of him but they'd never met him. So he starts off with his rank. He calls himself, in verse number one, a servant of Christ Jesus. Your Bible might say one of these words. It might say a slave of Christ Jesus or a bondservant of Christ Jesus. This is different than our modern understanding of what a slave is. You see, Christian theology teaches that you and I have the opportunity to become bondservants, doulos is the Greek word, of Jesus Christ, that does not mean that we have a God that just scoops us up and says you're mine no matter what you think about it. That's modern slavery. Bond servant says that's a master that I'm choosing to put myself under, that I'm choosing to serve, and I'm choosing to give my life to. If I remember correctly from some of my church history classes, often what would happen with bond servants in this day is you would willfully give your life over to a master they would take a metal, kind of a, a rod almost, or metal stake. They would put it on your earlobe. They would take a hammer, and they would pound it in, and it would create a hole in your ear. That was the identification that you were now completely given over to a certain master. For us as Christians, this title of bond servant, slave of Jesus, should not be viewed in the negative. This is a title of honor for us that we've chosen to give our lives to Jesus because he's a great savior and he came to rescue us from our sin. So what is the the mark that we now have as followers of Jesus? It's the spirit of God. The spirit of God now dwelling in us is that mark that we have, that we are Jesus Christ and nothing can ever change that because we've been given our our lives over to him. So Paul starts this letter to this church he's never met and notice, I think it's so interesting. He doesn't start with Paul, an apostle. He starts with Paul, a bondservant. Why does he do that? Because he wants them to understand that he's no different than they are. They're on the same playing field. They're all bondservants of Jesus Christ. So listen to the message I've come to bring you, Paul says. Then he, he starts with his rank and then he moves to his office. A servant of Jesus Christ called an apostle. Paul says, I was chosen by God for a specific task. Sent by God for a specific task. You know, in the 21st century, we, you've probably seen some churches before, and it's just different theological camps. We're not trying to dog anybody today. But sometimes in their church leadership, they'll have apostle so-and-so, apostle so-and-so. It's not something that we believe here. We believe that the apostleship was reserved for the original 12 people in the New Testament. The 11 disciples, so Judas got kicked out, and then uh, Paul. But the word apostle is interesting Because the word apostle simply means one who is sent by another. So if missionaries or church planters, they were sent by churches to go do a specific task. Now, Paul held a very unique and specific title because he was sent by God. He was sent by God for a specific task. Acts chapter 9, verse 15. On the road to Damascus, when Paul was converted, Jesus met him on that road. What did the scripture say? Jesus says to him, "'Go, for this man is my chosen instrument.'" Here it is, to take my name to the Gentiles, kings, and Israelites. Paul's mission was unique. He was sent to the Gentiles. He was sent with the name of Jesus to a specific people group. So while he held the office of apostle because of who he was in the early church, he also held it in the sense that he was sent by God for a specific task to come to the Gentiles. And did you know the majority of people in Rome, what they were? They were Gentiles. Here's the third one Paul identifies. He says, I'm a bondservant, I'm an apostle. And then he identifies his mission. He says, I was set apart for the gospel of God. That among the Gentiles, Paul was sent, as we said a moment ago, to take the gospel to them. You know, in the book of Romans, I didn't mention this in the beginning, the word gospel is mentioned over 60 different times. Over 60 times, Paul talks about the gospel, but there's an interesting play on words here, and I don't want us to miss this. You see, what was the Apostle Paul's title, role, and rank before he became the Apostle to the Gentiles? He was a Pharisee. You've probably heard that name before. The Pharisees, what were they? They were these religious leaders, but their title actually means the set-apart ones. The title Pharisee means we were set-apart. We're the religious elite. They were the people that stuck up their nose, floated about six inches off the ground, glowed a little bit kind of a thing. They thought they were something. They're religious elite, but their title means that they were set apart. So what's the play on words here? Paul's showing the Romans, God rescued me from that. Because I'm no longer a Pharisee, but now I'm set apart for something better. I'm not set apart for religious activity. Now I'm set apart for the gospel of God. That was his message. That's point number two, and we'll walk through these quickly. Point number two was Paul's message. His message was the gospel. But he clarifies for us in verse number two. Look at, look at verse number two. He says, which God, which he promised beforehand through his prophets in the holy scriptures. You see, there was this rumors going around in the early church. We saw this in Galatians. Galatians, that the gospel that Paul preached was something new. That this was something new that had never been taught before and you shouldn't follow Paul, man. We have to stick with the Old Testament stuff. And Paul says, no, no, no. The gospel that I bring to you was nothing new. This has always been the plan of God. Jesus was always part of the redemptive story to save sinners from their sin. Sometimes there's theological camps that will tell you that Jesus didn't show up until the book of Matthew when the gospel started and that's just not true. Jesus has always been the plan of God from the very beginning before time even started. Jesus says it in Luke 24, verse 27. Let me show you this verse real quick. Jesus is him talking. He's explaining to this group of people after his resurrection, these couple of guys. It says, then, beginning with Moses and all the prophets. It's all the way back in the Old Testament. He interpreted for them the things concerning himself in all of the scriptures. That means from Genesis all the way to Revelation, Jesus is the hero of the story. It's never been anything new. It's always been Jesus So what was this gospel about Jesus that Paul was set apart for? I'll give you three things. Look at verse 3 again. First off, concerning his son. So God had commissioned him for concerning Jesus. Let's just make this clear again. Say, Aaron, you're saying this a lot. I'll stop preaching the gospel when we get it right. We good with that? All right, here we go. First off, the gospel always centers on Jesus. Just what Paul says right there, concerning his son. Everything else that makes up the gospel centers around Jesus. I heard it described this way. Imagine our solar system. We're going to astronomy class. Are we ready? The sun's in the middle. Everything else orbits around it. The gospel's the same way. It's actually interesting that word concerning is a, a Greek word that can actually mean to orbit around. What, that, what does that mean for us? That Jesus is always the center of the gospel. He always has been. And everything else in the scriptures orbits right around Jesus. Jesus. If anybody tries to make anything else the center of the gospel, that's not the gospel. The gospel always orbits around Jesus. And Paul says a couple things about Jesus that are important. First off, he says he was a descendant of David according to the flesh. We know this because we just celebrated Christmas. Jesus came in the flesh. John 1.14, Jesus took on flesh and dwelt among us. It's that Christmas story we reflect on each year. Second word there he says about Jesus was he was appointed to be the powerful son of God. Now, I want you to circle that, highlight it, draw arrows. That word's going to freak some of you out. How could Jesus be appointed to be the son of God? I thought he was always God. I don't like that translation because I think it does that to us. I want you to circle that. I want you to write it right next to it. Shown to be. Shown to be. Revealed as Jesus has always been the powerful son of God. He has always been eternally existent. Jesus was God in the flesh. It wasn't like God was like, all right, we need a savior. Here we go, little creation potion. Here comes Jesus. No, no, no. Jesus is the eternally existent son of God, part of the Trinity, Father God, son of God, Holy Spirit. He's always been part of the plan. He is God. And what we see in the gospels is our God takes on flesh to rescue us from our sin. He's always existed as God. Here's the last thing that Paul highlights for us. He says that he was resurrected from the dead, meaning that proves Jesus' divinity for us. He was God in the flesh who, through his resurrection, paid your sin debt, paid my sin debt, secured our eternity, and proved he was God. Now, I'm going to quote somebody for you because I love this quote, but I don't endorse his theology. Y'all probably heard of Andy Stanley down in uh, Atlanta. I'm just not a huge fan. We all have our our preferences. But Andy Stanley said this. I love this about Jesus' resurrection. He said, if a man can predict his own death and his resurrection and pull it off, I'll just go with whatever that man says. I love that. Nobody else in human history has ever died and then resurrected again. Somebody said one time, well, what about Lazarus in the scriptures? Right? Remember Lazarus, he died, they wrapped him up, they put him in the tomb. And then what happened after that? Jesus came, he wept, he, he said, Lazarus, come out. His buddies were like, oh man, Jesus, he stinketh. And, but he still came out, they unwrapped him, and Lazarus was alive again. They're like, well, yeah, but Lazarus was resurrected from the dead. Let me make the distinction here for us. There's a difference between resurrection and resuscitation. We're on the same page there? If you're resurrected, it means you never died again. If you're resuscitated, it means you went back to the grave eventually. Lazarus was dead, he was resuscitated, and then he died. Jesus was dead, he resurrected, and now he's seated at the right hand of God the Father, ruling and reigning over the entire cosmos. He never died again and he never will. That's the difference. Jesus is the only one who has ever resurrected. And Paul closes with this thought in verse 5, because the gospel message is true, this transition we make here, what results in our lives when we believe the gospel? He says in verse 5 that through Jesus, we've received grace and we've received apostleship. To bring about the obedience of faith for, for the sake of his name among all the Gentiles. What's Paul reminding the Romans? That because of Jesus, we've received salvation and we all now have a calling upon our lives. That because Jesus has intersected our story, we've received salvation. But as Pastor Jeremy told us this past weekend, and we've heard him say it for years, if you ever sat under his preaching, Pastor Jeremy Westbrook, our current state convention president, That when Jesus saved you, he didn't save you to sit, soak, sour, and stink in a church pew. It's not what he saved you to do. Jesus saved you to live out a calling, to live on mission. Now here's what's amazing to me about the book of Romans. Paul had never been to Rome, but churches had been started. Paul had never been there. Most of the churches in the New Testament that we see started were started by the apostle Paul. And if you read through church history and you do some research, there's speculations as to how the churches got there. But nobody's really sure how the churches in Rome actually got started. But here's what we do know, and this is what I believe that they were everyday, average, ordinary people who believed the gospel enough, believed that Jesus saved, and they took the gospel with them anywhere and everywhere they went. And God used them in a very simple calling to start churches in a place called Rome. That's the introduction. Longest introduction in the New Testament, explanation of the gospel for us, who Paul is, a man named Saul whose life was changed on the road to Damascus, who's going to remind us over and over for two and a half years that Christ has died, Christ has been buried, but Christ rose again. And we say this every single week at Living Home, say it again, if you don't believe the gospel yet, today's a really good day to do so. That Jesus died for your sins, my goodness, my goodness, I pray, I pray this all the time for our church, that that's not something you just hear, but that's something that you know in the depth of your heart that has changed you. Jesus died for your sins. And that because we're sinners, Jesus was put in a tomb. Our sin and the wrath of God, the wrath of God killed Jesus. He took on the the wrath that we deserved. And it killed him. It's crazy. But three days later, death, sin, hell, and the grave couldn't hold our Jesus down. And Jesus resurrected from the grave, securing for you and for me eternal life in a place called heaven with him. And my prayer is not only would many people believe the gospel these next two and a half years, whether it be in person, through the radio, or on video. I don't care. I just want to see more people in heaven. That's why we do what we do, so one more can come with us. But not only that, I pray that Christians, that we would love the gospel so much more. I reminded the men this past weekend at this retreat. I pray we never forget what it was like to be lost. Too often we forget what it's like to not know Jesus. And we forget that good people don't go to heaven. Save people go to heaven. That people that believe in Jesus go to heaven. And how will they know, as Paul says in Romans, unless someone tells them? That's our calling. Can I pray for us as the praise team comes? Father, thanks for your word. And I thank you for the reminder that has been the gospel this morning. God, as we embark on this journey over these next couple of years, may we be a people that love the gospel more and more. Father, may we be a people that share the gospel more and more. And may we be a people that are wholly and fully devoted to Jesus. We love you so much, Lord. We pray now as we sing that the sound of our voices is a sweet sound through the corridors of heaven, giving you the praise you deserve. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.